0: Hello, and welcome to Shaking Scripture's Leaves, a podcast where we think through Scripture one passage, one topic at a time, until we have shaken all of its leaves. Now, this week we're going to be getting back into the normal podcast format, and I know that it has been a little while since the last time I've posted an episode. Uh, The fall semester has started, it's been rather busy. I am still working a job, and then I also had some additional things. Uh, that are taking up more of my time. I started dating a girl recently, and that's uh, that's been a rather welcome time drain, but a time drain nonetheless. So although I am planning to get back to that Ecclesiastes series, it takes me a good bit of time to prepare for those episodes because I prepare for them in a manner akin to sermon preparation. So there are hours and hours that go into the preparation of even a single episode. So this time around, just because it has been a while since I've posted something, I wanted to pick something that I've just been thinking through recently. And if you've read the title, then you know that this is a conversation about the Christian and alcohol. And the reason that I'm going to do an episode on this is just that recently, I myself have had reason to start thinking through the issue of how I myself am going to approach alcohol. And I turned 21 a few years ago. So this is not the first time that I have thought through how I myself am going to approach alcohol. But just recently, I've had reason to start thinking through it again. And since I'm thinking through it, I figured that, hey, might as well just do a brief little episode on my thoughts, basically. How do I work through scripture? What are the essentially black and white issues that do exist And then how do I myself navigate the gray, not necessarily as a prescription to other people that you need to navigate issues the exact way that I do, or that the conclusions I come to must be your conclusions. But instead, how do I look at the black and white that is, that does exist in the Bible? And then how do I go from that and just think through it in my own life in hopefully so that that can be helpful to how maybe one of you guys can think through black and or sorry, gray issues in your life. And when I say that, I don't mean that what's black and white in the scripture is different for me than what's black and white in scripture for you. That is absolutely not what I mean. But alcohol does involve conscience considerations and individual wisdom decisions that aren't going to be the same from one believer to another believer because God gives us the spirit, God gives us brains, and he expects us to steward our own circumstances wisely, and each of us is going to answer to God for how we govern the life that he gave us, or I should say steward the life he gave us. So that's a whole lot of front-loading, but I'm going to start talking about alcohol now. And one of the interesting things about alcohol that makes the discussion somewhat difficult is the fact that alcohol sits at the cross-section between moral absolutes and personal preferences. What do I mean by that? When we talk about alcohol, there are moral absolutes. There are things that I, as a teacher of the Bible, can say, this is wrong, and this is right, and then I can stamp, thus saith the Lord, on those statements there are moral absolutes that do exist regarding alcohol. And then there are also other areas that are not moral absolutes. There are other areas that are matters of personal decision-making and preference that if I were to take those and then stamp, thus says the Lord on that, that would be a problem. And so as I approach this issue, one of the things that I often keep in mind is that there are statements that I might, um, there are beliefs I might hold about alcohol that I would never actually say from a pulpit because I don't want someone to hear my personal preferences and my personal decisions and then think that they carry the weight of scripture behind them. Because there are things I say about alcohol that absolutely carry the weight of scripture behind them, but then there are other things that I would say about alcohol or I might think about alcohol that don't. And so we can run into issues or areas where I make a statement that is moral absolute, that this is what the Bible says, and I can stamp thus saith the Lord on it, and someone might hear that statement and think that I'm talking about preference when I'm not. I'm talking about moral absolutes. But then in the same way, we can be in a situation where I might discuss a personal preference that I have regarding alcohol, and someone listening might think that that's one of the statements that I might stamp, thus saith the Lord on. And they might think that it carries the weight of scripture. And so it's important to delineate those halves of the conversation. And since I'm talking about how I myself have been thinking through alcohol, both areas of discussion are going to come up. And I'm going to try to be very clear about where the line is. So let's talk about the moral absolutes. Like I said, there are things about alcohol that I can say with moral absolute force. There are things that the scriptures teach about alcohol that we as Christians and frankly, people in general are supposed to submit to. There are things that are not a matter of preference. There are things that are a matter of what God says and how we are going to respond to that. And so I'm going to start with the first thing, the first thing that I can say, and I can stamp, thus saith the Lord on it, where I can put on my moral absolute hat, where I can put on my preacher hat, and I can say, this is what the Bible says about alcohol. And also disobedience to this is sin. I can say that it is a sin to get drunk. And in the Old Testament, this is something that appears often just as a matter of wisdom. And there are other places it appears in the Old Testament where it's not a matter of wisdom. But when I talk about the matters of morality, I'm going to refer to the New Testament. But I just want to read you Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. And when I first turned 21... This is a passage that just kind of ran through my head on repeat. And it's Solomon saying, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Which, let me just pause real quick. That's a list of things that you don't want. That's a list of things that sound pretty bad. I don't want woe. I don't want sorrow. I don't want strife. I don't want complaining. I don't want wounds without cause. That's a whole list of things that I definitely look at and think to myself, uh, I'll prefer not having that in my life. Thank you very much. And so just as a wisdom issue, Solomon is addressing, here's a thing that's going to result in a lot of massive consequences in your life. What is it? Who has all these curses? Who has all of these difficult, painful realities in their life? Verse 30, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed drink. And he says, do not look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the, mast of, in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast, which let me just pause. Think about that imagery. Just Im, like imagine lying down on the top of a mast of a ship moving at sea, where if any of you get motion sickness and you kind of end up being on a ship and you blow trunks over the side, it's kind of like that where it kind of is a very vivid way to describe alcohol throwing off your balance and making you nauseous. And then in verse 35, they struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Where even as this person is doing this thing that results in all of these painful difficulties in their life, as they are confronted with the pain that is caused by what they're doing, it's actually a spiral where the pain that is caused by their misuse of alcohol drives them to alcohol once again, where you're causing yourself pain and you're responding to that pain by doing something that only causes more pain and the the thing in question is the abuse of alcohol. So as a wisdom issue, alcohol will destroy your life. Specifically, the misuse of alcohol, drunkenness, will destroy your life. Additionally, in Ephesians... In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, one of the commands, and Proverbs is a wisdom issue, but this is a moral command. One of the moral commands that Paul gives is he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Where Paul contrasts being filled with alcohol with being filled with the Spirit. That in the same way that as a Christian, the Holy Spirit is going to exert a controlling influence in your life. Guiding your decisions, keeping you from certain behaviors that might look attractive and yet you're going to reject them. Alcohol has a comparable effect. Where alcohol diminishes your ability to inhibit yourself from behaviors that might be alluring to you. Where God has given you inhibitions, God has given you the ability to essentially have your wits about you, to think clearly and to avoid things that you're not supposed to do and to pursue things that you want or sorry, pursue things that you should do, even if you don't necessarily want to. And when you inhibit yourself with a substance, in this case, alcohol, that is removing something that God intends for you to have and that is intended to guard you from sin and foolishness. So we are commanded as Christians, do not get drunk. So I can actually put on my preacher hat and I can say, it is wrong to get drunk. If you are getting drunk, that is sinful, that is wrong, and God says you should stop it if you're someone that you drink and the reason that you drink is because you like the buzz, if you're someone that you drink and the reason that you drink is because you're drinking for the effects that alcohol has on you, that's a problem. As a, as a teacher of the Bible, I can speak and have the force of scripture behind me when I say it is a sin to get drunk. And that's one moral statement. But then there's actually something else that's also very important. I can also say, and I can have the weight of scripture behind me when I say this, that it is not a sin to drink. It is absolutely a sin to get drunk. It is not a sin to in, to in, ingest alcohol. Drinking a beer is not an inherently sinful action. If I see you drinking that does not mean that you are committing a sin. And I can actually refer to the Bible and know that. Here's one example. And this is kind of an easy one. Jesus drank and Jesus provided alcohol for others, which I'm going to spend a lot of time on the statement that Jesus drank, but let's just briefly touch on John chapter two, the wedding at Cana. And this is Jesus' Uh, the first miracle of Jesus that we have recorded in the gospels. And so I'm just going to read it. But in chapter two, verse one on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, which there's kind of a funny interaction between Jesus and Mary there that I think is interesting, that there's probably a lot we could talk about with, but that's not the point of what we're talking about. So verse six, now there were six stone jars uh, there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So that's kind of interesting, which even the statement, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Why would people do that? because when you get a little bit buzzed, you start to not notice the quality of the alcohol you're drinking. So one of the reasons that I clarify that is that there are people who will look at wine in the Old, in the New Testament and they'll say, well, it wasn't really wine. It was just water with some wine in it to purify it. You know, it's not the kind of wine that you would drink and get inebriated from. There's a lot of problems with that statement. And one of them is, This is clearly talking about wine, one, because it uses the word wine, and two, because you're saving the bad wine until people have gotten a little bit tipsy and can't taste the difference. This is wine being drunk in a celebration. This is wine that, based on the story, has the capability to inebriate. So this is alcoholic wine. And I'm not going to spend time talking about the difference in the level of alcohol concentration back in the day of Jesus versus the level of concentration now. And part of the reason for that is I don't think it's a relevant discussion. But I also don't have time to give to it in this podcast. But Jesus provides alcoholic wine to a wedding. that that's That's helpful for our discussion. But we don't see any statement that Jesus himself drank at the wedding. And I would say that that's probably something you can assume, that Jesus probably drank. And we know that drinking and getting drunk is sinful, so we can know that Jesus didn't get drunk, but I don't think it's an unfit assumption to, at least as a possibility, even based just on John chapter 2, acknowledge the the likelihood that Jesus may have been drinking at this wedding, and I would assume that he was. But there's actually another statement in the Gospels that I think is more important, because basically there's not a faithful way to interpret it that does not lead you to the conclusion that Jesus drank. So, let's look at Matthew chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 11, there's some conversations about John the Baptist. And one of the statements that Jesus makes about John the Baptist is, you know, verse 9. What then did you go to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So John is praising or sorry, Jesus is praising John the Baptist, and he makes an interesting statement at the end. He says, "But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates." We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. In other words, whatever we give you, you're just not happy with. You know, you don't want to dance, and so we're like, well, okay, maybe you want to mourn. And so we play a dirge, and then you don't want to mourn for that. And it's just like, they're just a group of people, like petulant children that can't be pleased. And in verse 18, he says, For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And so Jesus compares himself to the John the Baptist, and one of the things he identifies is John the Baptist didn't drink. And we actually know from the biographical details of John the Baptist's birth, that John the Baptist was a Nazarite from birth, or at the very least, he was pledged and commanded to never drink alcohol uh, for his life. So John the Baptist didn't drink. And Jesus says, John the Baptist didn't drink. And you say of him, "He's, he's demon possessed. But when I come to you drinking, you accuse me of being a drunkard. So whether we do or don't consume alcohol, you have a low view of us. Now, there are people who will read this passage and they'll say, "Well, it doesn't actually mean that Jesus drank alcohol because for example, it says that John came neither eating nor drinking." And the thing is, if if John didn't eat, well then he'd starve to death. If he didn't drink, then he'd thirst to death. So they say, you know, this isn't really talking about eating and drinking alcohol. This is just talking about how John was out in the wilderness and he didn't go to places that had feasts. You know, John didn't attend feasts, but Jesus, he attended feasts. He went to places where there was eating and drinking. And there are two problems with that. Problem number one is it doesn't say that John didn't join feasts and Jesus did join feasts. It refers to the action of eating and drinking. Additionally, when you look at the parallel passage in Luke, chapter seven, the statement is this, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And the thing that's significant about that is you can tell that the statement in Luke is longer. John has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. Now, the, the objection that exists in the Matthew passage is, well, John the Baptist didn't literally not drink, and he didn't literally not eat. So maybe it's talking about some metaphorical use. But one of the things you got to remember is that Matthew, first of all, is written to a Jewish audience who's going to be more familiar with John the Baptist than the Gentile audience that Luke is written to. And additionally, in Matthew chapter 3, one of the statements made about John is that his food was locusts and wild honey. So we already know that John didn't drink, and we also know that John didn't eat bread. And the fact that Matthew has provided that information earlier in his book Before Jesus' statement about uh, John not eating or drinking, you can assume the rest of that statement. Because in in Luke's passage, which is written to a Gentile audience who are not going to be as familiar with John the Baptist, he doesn't abbreviate the sentence. Is it literally true that John didn't eat bread? Is it literally true that John didn't drink wine? Yes, that is literally true. And so, You might, if you only had the passage in Luke, you might come to the conclusion that maybe, like, hypothetically, it's possible that it's not referring to the actions, but it's referring to them going to a place of feasting. And frankly, that is so, in my estimation, that's just very weak. Like, that's not a position you take unless you have a serious axe to grind. But let's just assume, you know, that that's a potentially acceptable view of the Matthew passage. When you then look at the Luke passage where you find, oh, it's an abbreviated statement, it kind of does away with that interpretation. But then also, let's just assume for the sake of argument that a valid interpretation of this statement is that Jesus just went to feasts. It's not exactly saying that he drank, it's just saying that he went to feasts. And by the way, I do not think that is a valid interpretation, but for the sake of argument, let's just say that it is. Why then would I assume? that Jesus never drank any of the times that he went to a feast where in the normal practice of his culture, drinking would happen. And Jesus, in some circumstances, even provided the booze. It's a major stretch from the idea that Jesus just went to feasts. And all he's saying is that he went to feasts And people are accusing him of being a drunkard, not because he ever drank any wine, but just because he was there where people were drinking wine. Like to go from that and to go from that to Jesus was just attending the parties and then to go from the idea that Jesus was just attending the parties to the idea that he attended the parties but never had a drop. No one reads these passages who doesn't have a desire to essentially walk away believing that drinking is wrong? Like, no one reads these passages without that context and leaves it with the impression, oh, wow, I didn't realize that Jesus never drank. Like, that's just not something that you would come to this passage without some pre-understanding or essentially like already held conclusion. Like, unless you're coming to this passage with an already established conclusion you're not going to leave it with that impression. Like anyone coming to this passage for the first time and reading it is going to leave understanding John didn't drink wine and Jesus did. So that's the first thing. If, if drinking alcohol is inherently sinful, if having a beer is inherently sinful, then Jesus sinned. Because based on the text of scripture, it sure looks like Jesus drank. And there's not a strong case to be made that drinking is inherently sinful. And if it is inherently sinful and Jesus did it, we've got some problems. So I have, so we are able to have a very, very high degree of confidence that Jesus drank, which means that drinking is not inherently sinful. I feel like that's a pretty good, it's a pretty good argument. If you're someone who believes that Jesus was perfect. In other words, if you're a Christian, so that's kind of significant. Additionally, In the Bible, there are passages that refer to drinking as a good activity. In Psalm 104, 14 to 15, it says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. It's referring to God, like the blessings he gives to his creation. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart where the psalmist is referring to blessings that God has given his creation, and among those blessings is wine. Additionally, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7 says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So, let's just quickly restate the moral absolutes that I can state about, about alcohol. Moral absolute number one it is a sin to get drunk. If you are drinking and getting drunk, I can say with the force of scripture behind me, that is sinful. That is wrong. Stop doing it. Additionally, the Bible demonstrates that drinking in and of itself is not inherently sinful. So it is not wrong to drink, but it is absolutely wrong to get drunk. There's actually another moral issue that does come up with uh, drinking though, because Even though you're free to drink, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's never a situation in which it might be sinful to drink. What do I mean? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul addresses an issue of Christian freedom, and specifically the example he addresses is meat sacrificed to idols. And so I'm going to read a portion of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then I'm going to walk you guys through it, and then discuss how it relates to alcohol. So in, in verse 1, For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for uh, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, before I continue through that passage, I want to discuss a little bit about what he's talking about here. Back in the time that this is written, And in Corinth, there would be meat that was sacrificed to idols, and of course, the idols can't eat the meat, and so the the meat would be eaten in celebrations and in worship ceremonies, and additionally, the leftover meat would be sold. So you could go to the temple, and you could buy meat that had been butchered and cooked, and it was sacrificed to an idol, but as a Christian, we understand that the idol is not real. It makes no difference if this meat was cooked over an idol flame or if it was cooked over a normal flame because the reality is both are just normal flames. And so I'm just grabbing some meat. Now, the question is, why does that? Why is Paul talking about this? Idols aren't real. It doesn't matter if meat was sacrificed to an idol. It makes no difference because idols aren't real. Why do I care? Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some... And so, the situation that we see here is that you might have a more mature Christian, a more knowledgeable Christian that they know the idol's not real. It makes no difference if this meat is sacrificed to an idol because the idol' is not anything to begin with. I just want some good meat. I just want some cheap meat that that's all that's what I'm here for, and I understand that by eating this meat, I am not participating in this worship, but you might have a new convert. That they haven't yet come to grips with the reality that that false God that they have spent their life worshiping doesn't even exist. Where even though a person might become a Christian and be genuinely saved, it doesn't mean that just in that moment of conversion, just all of this knowledge and maturity just beams into your head and all of a sudden you have this deep understanding. Like, no, you become a Christian and you need to learn. You become a Christian and you need to mature. And so a person who has been worshiping in this cult, who they view eating that meat as though it were participation in the worship of that idol, you as a Christian, a mature Christian, you might understand that just because I'm eating this meat does not mean that I am participating in the worship of this idol. But a new Christian who I'm with, they feel like they are participating in the worship of an idol if they eat that meat. And by watching me eat this meat, they might be like peer pressured into doing something that they feel is sinful. And that's a massive problem. One, because you do not want to be in the habit of ignoring your conscience. John MacArthur makes a point that I think is well stated that your conscience might not be informed right now, but as you mature and grow, your conscience will eventually be well-formed. And you don't want to build up the habit of ignoring your conscience when it is weak, because one day when your conscience is strong and dissuading you from doing things you shouldn't be doing, you don't want to be in the habit of ignoring it. And so, as a more mature Christian, I don't want to be having a younger Christian be getting into the habit of ignoring their conscience because of my behavior. Additionally, if they feel like they're participating in the worship of an idol, they shouldn't be doing it. So, it's the situation where, even though you might have the freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols, you actually love your brother and you care about your brother's well being more than you care about your rights and freedoms as a Christian. So, personally, if I'm in that situation and I'm with a brother who he has a weak conscience and he thinks that eating this meat is sinful. And I know full well that eating this meat is not sinful. And in fact, I've had a real hankering for some steak. I am going to eat some vegetables instead because I care more about the conscience of my brother in Christ than I do about it exercising some amount of freedom that I have. And so if we were to apply that to alcohol, I know that eating, that drinking some of this alcohol is not sinful. I know that it is not sinful to have a beer. I know that as a Christian, I am free to enjoy this beverage. But if I'm with a Christian who's a new convert, and let's just say, for example, that they have spent the last five years in their life in the party scene, where every single time they ingest alcohol, it is associated with, and usually goes along with, a massive amount of other sinful activities. And they do not yet understand that there is a non-sinful way to enjoy the freedom of alcohol. And now they watch me drinking and despite the fact that alcohol is a feature of that sinful life they left behind, they see me drinking and just from the peer pressure of it, they have a drink too. I have just caused my brother to sin against his own conscience. And that's a problem because in Romans 14, which is another passage where Paul addresses this same reality, he says that whatever is done that is not from faith is sin. In fact, verse 23, but whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if you have a brother with a weak conscience and, and they go against their conscience to eat the meat, you've just caused your brother to sin. And so in the context of alcohol, if I have a new convert who they, they, they think that drinking alcohol is sinful, that's an aspect of their life before Christ. They don't want to touch it. And then because of my peer pressure, now they're drinking? That's a massive problem. However, notice also in 1 Corinthians 8. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is writing to a church of believers that has believers who know that it is not wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And it also has believers that think it is wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Paul does not write a letter and say, both of those are acceptable positions. No. There were people in the audience at Corinth that thought it was sinful to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and Paul's response was to write them a letter and say, it is not sinful to eat meat sacrificed to idols, you're wrong. And he also wrote to the mature Christians who know that it's not sinful to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And he said, yes, you have a right to do this. Yes, you are free to do this. But also, you are obligated to act out of love for your weaker brother. And it is not as important that you exercise your freedom as it is that you are acting in love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, as a person who like, let's just revisit the alcohol example. If I'm with someone who doesn't understand that there is a category of alcohol ingestion that is not, that is not sinful for a Christian to participate in. I am not going to drink a beer around them under no way is that going to happen. If I'm around that brother or sister in Christ, I am not going to drink a beer around them, but also I'm going to have a conversation with them about God's actual standards about alcohol. I am going to talk to them about the fact that it is absolutely sinful to get drunk, but it is not sinful to drink. I'm going to bring them to the passages that talk about the fact that Jesus drank and it's not necessarily like, you know, if, if I'm at a gathering and there's some alcohol at a gathering and I see that like, Oh, there's a new convert that I've never met before who thinks that alcohol is wrong. I'm not going to be like, Oh, oh, oh let me set the beer down. Come over here. Christian. I've never met. We're going to have a Bible study. Like, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. Like that's, you know, if I'm in a situation where there's someone that it would be appropriate in the stage of our relationship to have a conversation about alcohol, then like, yeah, I'll have a conversation about alcohol. But I'm not necessarily saying that every circumstance where you're around someone with a weak conscience, um, God has placed it on your uh, table to have a conversation with them, to bring them to the greater maturity. Like there's wisdom about that. But it is not an acceptable position that alcohol is inherently sinful. In the same way that it is not an acceptable position to hold that eating meat sacrificed to idols is sinful, it is not an acceptable position to hold that drinking is inherently wrong. That is contrary to scripture. I cannot come to you and say you should never drink and act as though that has the weight of scripture behind it. It doesn't. That would be a misuse of my role as a teacher of the Bible. That would be a twisting of what the Bible says. What I can say for certain is that it is wrong to get drunk. It is sinful to get drunk. And it is not sinful to drink. And also, although you are free, there are implications for how a Christian is supposed to steward their freedom. And there's one last thing that I want to talk about because it relates to kind of how I've been thinking about this issue for myself. There are also situations where there are people who, it's not that they have a weak conscience about alcohol. It's not that they've been saved out of alcoholism. It's not that they've been saved out of the party culture and they just have a weak conscience, but they're uninformed. There are people who they should know better. They've read the Bible, but despite the fact that they've read the Bible, they're actually legalists where they have added this to the Bible, where they have said, you know, hey, the Bible says it's wrong to get drunk and the Bible says you have the freedom to drink. But let me explain to you with arguments from scripture why a Christian shouldn't drink, why a minister under no circumstances should ever drink alcohol. And they'll try to make these arguments and actually act as though it's God's standard. And that's not a weak conscience. That's just legalism. And I want to give an example of how Jesus and his disciples responded to a similar issue in their time. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And the thing that they're referring to is that there was this whole, essentially, ceremonial cleansing That Pharisees would do where they would wash their hands in a very particular way before they had a meal. And they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, why do your disciples not follow the ritual of hand washing? And Jesus, and first of all, notice, you could say the Pharisees had, quote, a weak conscience about this. That they, in their heart of hearts, believed it was wrong not to wash their hands before eating. That this was a conviction that they had. Notice that Jesus and his disciples did not respond to that conviction by honoring it. They didn't wash their hands before they ate. And now Paul does talk about situations where he makes himself all things to all people that by all means he might save some. And so again, this is an issue of Christian freedom. How am I going to steward my freedom? So there might be a situation perhaps where there's some legalistic standard someone has, but because you're evangelizing them, you'll abide by the legalistic standard so that you don't cause offense to that person and so hamper your ability to share the gospel. I'm not I'm not like saying that that's not a category, but I am saying, just observe, like Jesus and his disciples, There was a legalistic thing that the Pharisees were doing that they were adding to the standards of scripture where they read the law of God and they added to it. They added this rule about hand washing and Jesus and his disciples didn't honor it. And when the, and when the Pharisees came to him in verse three, he answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So you, uh, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Notice this teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men where the Pharisees come to Jesus and his disciples and they say, why aren't you abiding by the standards we have added to the Bible? And Jesus goes on a tirade about how they're hypocrites and they're legalistic and they're adding rules to God's word. Interesting. So there are people that they'll talk about alcohol consumption and they'll say, yes, it is wrong for a Christian to drink alcohol. And the thing that I would say and that I would encourage you with is that's not true. The Bible does have the standard that you shouldn't get drunk. That is absolutely true. It is a sin to get drunk and the abuse of alcohol will ruin your life. And that's Proverbs. That's also Ephesians. It is also true that drinking a drink is not inherently sinful. And that doesn't mean that there's never a situation where you with your freedom aren't going to consider the needs of your brother and decide that you're not going to enjoy the freedom you have. There are situations where drinking would be sinful because you would be harming the weak conscience of a brother. That's true. But a a person who's legalistically adding a standard to the Bible is not in the same category as a person who has a weak conscience because they're just not informed. Those aren't the same. And I'm not saying this to you so that you can find everyone who thinks that drinking is sinful and just like throw the book at them and just go ham and start being like, "Hey, you're a legalistic jerk. Let me tell you what the Bible actually says." Like there's a lot of situations where people are raised in a legalistic culture and they aren't familiar with what the Bible says, and that might constitute a weak conscience. And even in those situations where someone has an inaccurate view of alcohol, You're going to act towards them in love and gentleness. And so I'm not trying to say this so that you can like arrogantly, unkindly go after people who are mishandling this. I'm also not suggesting that that's an acceptable view to hold. The idea that it is always wrong for a Christian to drink. The idea that if you are a Christian, you therefore shouldn't drink. The idea that if you are a minister, you should not drink that is not scriptural. And it doesn't mean that there's never a situation where a minister might make the decision in their context not to drink. That doesn't mean that there's never a situation where a Christian might make the decision in their context not to drink. I'm not saying that it's wrong if you make that choice. It is absolutely wrong to act as though that is a standard of scripture and try to then enforce that on others. So, That's like the stuff that I can say with my preacher hat on. That's the stuff that I can say with the weight of scripture behind it. But now, because I have been thinking about it for myself, I'm going to talk to you about kind of the thoughts that I have about that as I'm thinking about what to do in my circumstance. First of all, as a wisdom issue, alcohol's got some danger associated with it. And I'm not saying that like, if you drink alcohol, that you're always running the risk of sinning. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to trip and fall and open up a liquor cabinet and then like, whoa, I accidentally just drank 15 beers while wow, that happened. Like, I'm not saying that if you drink that you're like risking getting drunk. But what I am saying is um, it's really hard to get drunk if you never drink. So there's an entire category of wisdom that I don't have to wrestle through if I just don't drink. There's an entire category of like just considerations and risks that I don't even have to consider. I don't have to think about what's the line between being sober and being drunk. I don't have to think about how many drinks is too many. I don't have to think about how often is too often. If I just don't drink, that is a lot of questions that I don't even have to think about. And by the way, we have entered the portion of the conversation where I am not wearing my preacher hat. Where I'm thinking about personal preference, where I'm reasoning through this for myself, and I'm thinking about, well, how am I gonna handle it? This is not my preacher hat. So I'm thinking about the fact that getting drunk is a real issue. Alcohol's got some very legitimate uh, dangers. Do I want to introduce those into my life? Additionally, alcohol doesn't have any benefits. If I drink, I'm not like somehow getting more healthy. And in fact, I recently listened to like an episode from the Andrew Huberman podcast, which I don't know if you guys have heard of him. He's not a Christian, but he is a psychologist. He's a, um, he's a neuroscientist. I mean, and he did an alcohol about just the modern studies on the effects of alcohol. And I listened to it. I thought it was really interesting. And I mean, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist and I'm not a health scientist. So it's not like I can put a stamp of approval on the stuff. He says he's quite a bit more qualified than I am, but based on the stuff in his podcast, basically there's a lot of health drawbacks to alcohol. Like it's basically exclusively bad for you and it doesn't have any health benefits. So those are some things I'm thinking about too. Alcohol is bad for me. There are risks associated with getting drunk, including moral risks. Alcohol does not pose any health benefits for me. I'm not better off for drinking. I'm not going to like wake up in 15 years and be like, goodness gracious. I sure wish I had drank more gin, but Does that necessarily mean that it's always unwise to drink alcohol? Because for example, I personally, I enjoy the taste of alcohol. Personally, I really like whiskey and gin. And just to kind of give you a a window into my life and how often I drink, uh, I bought a six pack like two and a half weeks ago. And I checked my fridge before I started recording this. And I still have four of those beers left. So I personally don't drink often and I don't drink much when I do, but I personally enjoy the flavor of gin. I enjoy the flavor of whiskey. I drink them straight. Like I'll sip on a a drink of gin for like two and a half hours. And as I've been reconsidering how I'm going to approach alcohol, I'm maybe I'm going to stop doing that. But I personally drink and I drink rarely. And so I understand that there are absolutely people that enjoy the taste of alcohol. So is it, and I'm going I'm to use an analogy, just because alcohol is bad for you, just because alcohol has drawbacks and doesn't really have benefits, does that therefore mean that it is, never a we- that is always unwise to drink it and that it is sinful to drink it? Because, for example, I'll have people who say, back in the time of Jesus, we didn't know about the health drawbacks of alcohol in the same way that we know about them now. We didn't know about all of the issues that we now know about. And one of my things would be, God did. God knew about those things. And he didn't say it was sinful. And so I'm not going to use modern discoveries about alcohol to comment on the morality of alcohol. But it certainly informs me to make a wise decision. I'll be able to steward that information. And I want to use an analogy. Let's talk about chocolate cake. Why would you ever eat chocolate cake? Chocolate cake is bad for you. Chocolate cake does not have nutritional benefit. Chocolate cake is useless. And is it therefore always sinful for a a person to have a slice of chocolate cake? If you're at a birthday party and someone offers you a chocolate cake, do you have to turn it down because it's not good for you? In fact, it's bad for you. Your body is actually slightly worse off for having eaten that chocolate cake. Should we make it as, should we preach from our pulpits that it is always wrong to go to McDonald's and it's always wrong to eat fast food because it's not the healthiest thing you could have eaten? Like, is that something that we as preachers have the authority to teach? Like, think about that. There's a reality that there are things that we do and there are things that we eat and drink that even though they are not good for us, we eat them because they're enjoyable, and. I mean, consider 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 10, is it 31 or 13? I'm going to look it up. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And I'm also going to reference real quick 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. This is a verse that I think about. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be... Actually, I'm going to read this whole thing. Uh, Now, the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. if if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so pertinent to our discussion that require abstinence from foods that God has created to be received with Thanksgiving, that one of the benefits that eating chocolate cake has is that I taste my chocolate cake and I enjoy it and it tastes good. And that I'm really grateful for God that he lets me eat things that taste good. That's relevant. And Personally, I enjoy the flavor of alcohol. And so when I drink alcohol, it causes me to be thankful to God because that he lets me drink it. And considering the chocolate cake example, right now I'm young. One of the things that I saw in my grandfather's life when he was getting towards the end of his life is that because his health was so precarious, his family would never let him drink milkshakes or cake or desserts. And so he would sometimes try to like sneak the sugary foods And I just think about the fact, like I looked at that where he was because of his health blocked from enjoying the unhealthy, but delicious things that he wanted to eat. And I think about the fact that I'm young right now. And so I can eat cake with comparatively low consequence. Is it unwise for me to enjoy something good, knowing that I won't always be able to enjoy it? One of the things that my other grandfather used to say to me, is, he said, you know, John, you eat right, you exercise, you get old, and you die anyway. Is it always unwise to enjoy something that isn't necessarily good for you in terms of health? I don't think that's a statement that you can make. I think that that's not a statement you can make based on things like Ecclesiastes, that cares about the, the enjoyment of, of life. Things like 1 Timothy 4, where you enjoy the things God gave you as gifts and say thank you, like Psalm uh, 104, which talks about the blessings that God gives to men to enjoy and includes wine to gladden the heart, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen his heart. Like, enjoying something isn't necessarily an unwise thing, even when it's not good for you. But also, I almost never eat chocolate cake. I actually don't remember the last time I ate chocolate cake. I don't drink that often. And when I drink, I don't drink much. Part of the reason for that is that I know it's bad for me. It's unhealthy. It doesn't mean that I never do it. There are times that I do things I enjoy, even though they aren't the healthiest option, because I'm going to die anyway. And it's not always unhealthy. Like It's not always unwise to enjoy something that isn't necessarily good for you. There's absolutely a way that that gets sinful. Like if you're eating nothing but chocolate cake, um, the Bible does say that gluttony is a sin. And I am going to have a conversation with you about gluttony. And I'm going to have a conversation with you about the fact that you're supposed to steward your body. So there is an extent to which you can do things that are bad for you to the extent that they might even cross into the territory of sin. That's true. But does that then therefore mean that you can never do those things with a good conscience? that's something that you got to think about. That's something that I think about. And so as, as a Christian, what am I going to do? Well, one of the other things that I think about is I'm training to be a minister. I'm training to be a pastor. I know of pastors who say, well, um, I don't want to drink because I don't want to drive my congregation to do something that might cause them to respect me less. I don't want to cause them to do something that might cause them to stumble. And if they know I drink, then that'll cause them to go against their conscience. And one of the things that I think about is, as a pastor, I'm supposed to be an example of how you steward your freedom. One of the ways that you steward your freedom is by enjoying it without sin, is by enjoying it in a way that causes people to see how you might sacrifice your freedoms to love God, and also that they might see how you steward and enjoy your freedoms to give thanks to God. And if people in my congregation... Have a weak conscience about alcohol, I'm not going to drink around them. I'm not going to put them in a situation where they have peer pressure to drink. But if they know that the pastor drinks, um, then one of the things that comes with that is the question of why does the pastor drink? And so if I have brothers and sisters with weak consciences, then maybe even though drinking isn't good for me, one of the things that I think about is like drinking's not good for me. Maybe it would be a healthy thing to just decide to never drink. But then I might lose opportunities to help brothers and sisters who are immature with weak consciences to be able to see how does, a, how does a healthy Christian, a mature Christian, steward this freedom. Additionally, there are a lot of Christians who have a legalistic attitude towards alcohol. If they know that I don't drink, that might help them to reaffirm that legalistic attitude because even the pastor doesn't drink. And so, in the same way that you could make the argument that by drinking, I might cause people to act against their conscience by not drinking, I might encourage a an um I might encourage an immature legalistic attitude among my congregation. and that's potentially also a risk. And so the thing that I think about is, how about I make my own conscience decision and I decide whether or not I'm going to drink? And I'm going to steward my freedom well, and I'm going to make sure that I'm not peer pressuring a weak conscienced Christian to do something that would violate their standing before God, and I'm going to make sure that I teach what the Bible says. Like, I think that's probably the best way to go about it. And I'm still working through this issue, by the way. I'm still thinking about this. I have freshly begun, again, thinking through in my life, how am I going to approach alcohol? especially based on the health effects of alcohol. I think if nothing else, I'm going to end up drinking less than I did before. I might even end up drinking not at all. But the thing that's important is that when I say I'm going to drink less and I'm probably not going to drink at all because drinking is bad for you, and it is, and because drinking has risks associated with it, and it does, that is not something that I'm saying with my preacher hat on. That is not something that I am saying as though it bears the weight of scripture behind it. If I said, I think from scripture that it is better for a not for a Christian not to drink. I think that you as a Christian should not drink. I think that you as a minister should not drink. And I think that I can say that with the weight of scripture behind me. That is a misuse of scripture. The Bible does not say that. That is not a statement that I can make in good conscience as a steward of God's word because God doesn't say that. God does say it is a sin to get drunk. God does, I I can say that the scriptures demonstrate that it is not sinful to drink. God does have things to say about the way that you steward your Christian freedom. But I think that one of the issues is we have preachers that will say based on the Bible or they'll say, they'll say like, based on the Bible, you shouldn't drink. And then that muddies the conversation because the Bible doesn't say that. And I think to myself, if you're drawing a line somewhere that the Bible doesn't draw a line and you're acting as though the Bible draws a line there, where else are you muddying the waters? Where else are you drawing lines that the scriptures don't draw? And where are you not drawing lines that the scriptures do draw? Because my job is not to come to my own wisdom decisions and then enforce those on other Christians as though the scriptures defend that. My job, my job is to deliver the scriptures as God delivered them to me and and to show people what the scriptures say and then to steward my freedom between me and God. And I might discuss how I'm coming to those decisions with someone else. But under no circumstances, am I going to put on my preacher hat and then say things that the Bible doesn't say? At least I'm going to try very hard not to do that. And where I do do that and I come and it comes to my attention, I'm going to repent and apologize and stop doing it. And so in this conversation, there are moral absolutes about alcohol that I can say and then say, thus saith the Lord. But alcohol is also an individual wisdom issue that Christians need to think about and come to a decision on. Yes, alcohol is not good for you, but also lots of things aren't good for you. Does that always mean that it's sinful to do things that aren't, quote, healthy for you? Is it always sinful to enjoy things that aren't necessarily the most healthy thing for you? No. And so I'm I'm currently working through this issue. And when I first worked through this issue, I decided that Like I made some rules for myself about how I was going to drink and how I was going to not drink. I made some rules for myself about how often I was going to drink and what I was going to drink. Like I I did those things. And right now I'm going through another process of reconsidering. And as it turns out, my dad is doing something similar. I found out about that recently. And I don't actually know what decision I'm going to come to. I think it's entirely possible that I'm going to come to a decision to abstain. And one of the reasons for that is just, which I I think that this is going to be a helpful thing to kind of discuss. I don't know how many people that listen to my podcast know this, but I used to smoke. And so I, I smoked rather commonly. And I didn't think that smoking was sinful. And I still don't think smoking is sinful. But, and I'm not saying that there's no way you could smoke that wouldn't be sinful. But for me personally, I smoked in a way that I don't think was sinful. And the thing that caused me to stop smoking is the fact that when pe- it, I felt ashamed and embarrassed for people to know I smoked. And I thought about the fact, like, just as a conscience issue, I don't want to do things that I'm ashamed of people knowing I do. And so I stopped smoking. And so I, I don't smoke. And that doesn't mean that under no circumstances will I ever smoke a cigar. That if someone offers me a cigar, that I'm always going to be like, no. And I mean, typically if people offers me a cigar now, the thing that I say is, yeah, so I actually quit smoking, but it doesn't mean that there's never a circumstance that I'll smoke. Like as far as a conscience issue goes, I wouldn't be feel like I would violating my conscience if I smoked, but just as a health decision and as a conscience decision, just I don't smoke. I don't think it's good for me. I don't want to do things that are, that I would be ashamed of people knowing I did. And I actually feel more strongly about not smoking than I do about not drinking because it does not embarrass me for people to know I drink. But it's entirely possible that at the end of this co- of this thought process, I'm going to come to a similar position on alcohol, at least for my own life, as I did with smoking. It's bad for me. It doesn't benefit me. And I just don't want it in my life. Does that mean that under no circumstances will I ever drink? Will I ever have a beer? No. Not necessarily. Maybe that is what I'm going to come to, but I don't know. I'm kind of in the process of thinking through it. But does that mean that I'm never going to touch a beer? Maybe not. But I think there's a solid chance that I'm going to come to the conclusion that I just, I basically want to not drink. That just as a rule in my life, I'm not going to, I'm not going to drink. doesn't mean that I never drink, but just as a general rule, I'm not going to drink in the same way that I, I don't smoke anymore. I think it's a poor stewardship of my body. I don't think that my enjoyment of the alcohol, my enjoyment of the beverage is worth the drawbacks it has. And so that's kind of the stuff that I'm thinking through. But again, that is all stuff that I am not wearing my preacher hat for. There are things I wear my preacher hat for. There are things I don't wear my preacher hat for. In the same way that I like running, and I would recommend that you run, in the same way that Chocolate cake's not good for you, and I don't think you should eat chocolate cake. Not necessarily you never do, but I don't think you should eat chocolate cake, just as a general rule. It's not good for you. In that sense, I might also say, just as a person, alcohol is not good for you. Smoking is not good for you. You shouldn't do them. But as a preacher, as someone that God has entrusted with the, with the Bible and has given the opportunity to teach the Bible, the Bible does not say that drinking is a sin. And it would be a mishandling of the Bible for me to pretend that it does. And so I just have been thinking through all this. And so I thought it would be helpful to just kind of talk through how do I think this issue through this issue as I'm grappling with my own conscience. And even though I haven't come to a conclusion on what I'm going to do personally, I, I still thought that this would be a helpful thing to talk about. And it doesn't take as much preparation because I've already been thinking about it as a typical Ecclesiastes message would. So I am planning on picking that series back up. I don't know when I'll have the opportunity to, but until I do, here's just an episode on alcohol. And so as, as my, as my practice, I'd like to pray for you before you go, (sighs) ha, Lord, thank you for the fact that you've given us your word, that you have given us standards, that even as Christians, there are commands that you give us to obey and that we are supposed to be obedient to, but also we have freedom. You have given us good gifts to enjoy, and you have given us good gifts to, in some situations, abstain from. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to navigate those things rightly, that we would steward our freedom in a way that is honoring to you and obedient to you, and that you would guide us in that process. I pray that you would help myself to think through the issue of alcohol and how I'm going to steward my own freedom. And Lord, that you would also give wisdom to the people who listen to this and to other Christians who are grappling with the same thing, that we wouldn't have an attitude of arrogance towards people who think differently than we do, but that we would have a firm commitment to what your Bible, to what your word says, but that even when there are people who are wrong, that we would be gentle towards them and loving towards them, that we wouldn't get into a fight, that we wouldn't get into an ego battle, but that this would be an area like any other where we are genuinely motivated by the well-being and the care of our brothers. I pray that you would help me as I grapple through this. I pray that you would help other people as they grapple through this. And I pray that you these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shaking Scriptures Leaves. If you would like to reach out to me or read blog posts on other issues, you can visit my website at shakingscripturesleaves.com. I'll see you next time.